Well, I am so excited to be back with the Christ Journey family. I missed you. I love you. I'm so happy to be back together again. And what an incredible opportunity to be a part of what God is doing in the Middle East. And so we want to greet our friends there, not only those in uh, Kendall Campus and Gables Campus right here in South Florida, but across this nation and around the world in the name of the God who so loves the world. And yet here's what we know. We're in a world of hurt right now. I mean, in the aftermath of the storm, I was in touch this week with a friend in Houston, so we're still keeping them in our thoughts and prayers and heart. Uh, heard from people in Puerto Rico, good news from Puerto Rico. We heard uh, from friends in the churches in Cuba where we've served with them, uh, from our people in Nicaragua as well. Um, and so we continue to be in prayer for that. I was in the Keys, and then also we pray for all of those up the state of Florida that are in the aftermath of the storm and of course the horrors that were unleashed in uh, Las Vegas. We have family and friends there. I have family, relatives who live and, uh, and lead their lives in Las Vegas. And Dave Weidman's uh, daughter serves in a church there that's engaged this morning and we're praying for them as well in the aftermath of that. And like I said, to have the privilege of serving on a medical team that was with the uh, refugees from the war in Syria over the last two weeks. And we'll have more to say about that at another time after our team has a chance to meet with the missions committee. And then we'll tell everybody, hey, if you want to hear about that, then come to a gathering, you'll hear about it. Um, but I want us to pray together just for a moment. Lord, help us know how to help those in need. And today more than yesterday and now more than ever, in your name we pray, amen. Um, so I'm, um, I'm, I'm in my garage. I walk into my garage and I'm preparing for Irma. Okay. And you know what I say? What a mess. What a mess. I mean, piles of stuff in disarray and disorder. And, uh, and it's like desperately needing attention. And of course I've got to get the shutters out and put them up on the window. I got to get the, the generator out, crank it up, make sure it's ready to go. I got to, um, Make room to put a car in the garage. There's a novel idea. <laughs> put a car in the garage. Um, and yet, you know, so it's time to simplify. It's time to clean house. But how did it get to be so cluttered? And why does it feel so chaotic? And it's embarrassing to say that to you, but it's even more embarrassing to have people see it. You know, I had guys come over to the house. One was working on an air conditioner and, you know, the units there through the garage. And another had to come over and we're checking the circuit breakers and all this stuff. And of course, I'm thinking, don't look over here. You know, it's like, it's embarrassing. I'm thinking, they're looking and saying, what a mess. I mean, can anything good come out of the mess in this garage, right? And it's not like I don't know how to keep a clean room. I mean, I was taught well the value of neatness and order. Um, and, but yet somehow the mess finds me, and then that bothers me. Now, uh, I'm not OCD, okay? Um, by the way, have you, do you know what CDO is? It's like OCD, except the letters are in the right order. Yeah, think about that. Um, alphabetical. Um, but I'm not OCD, I'm not CDO. You know, I'm more like the guy, you heard this, um, who said, uh, if a cluttered desk represents a cluttered mind, then what does an empty desk signify? <laughs> I mean, keep up with me now. You know, this is, 
These are sneaky. Uh, but here's what happens to me. My files become piles. And then the mess just kind of finds me, right? And I'm wondering, can anybody relate? I mean, life can be messy. And not only material life, but emotional life, relational life, spiritual life. Have you ever found yourself looking at some piece of your life and just saying, man, what a mess. How did it get to be like that? I didn't plan that, but something's got to change. You look at some part of your life, your relationships, or your emotional life, or your pace of life, you know, or your choice of friends, or your recreational decisions, or your priorities, and you just say this, hey, wait, something's not right here. Ever been there? Now, if you have found yourself there and wondered, I wonder what God's perspective is on this, then man, I got a chapter for you today. And if this is your first time with us ever to peer into a window like this, then this may be of interest with you, to you. Thank you for coming, by the way. Ephesians chapter two is the answer to that. And in this brief chapter we're gonna take a look at, what Paul does is look at the human condition globally, historically, from God's perspective, the entire human race, and then it's like he takes our little cheeks and he puts them right in the mirror and says, now look, because none of us are exempt but his response may be a little surprising. Kind of reminds me of the story of Michelangelo. You know, Michelangelo, um, the first time he set eyes on the stone from which he would carve the iconic David. And this amazing masterpiece, perhaps the world's most famous sculpture, um, one of Florence, Italy's greatest attractions. And yet, did you know when Michelangelo, who created that masterpiece, he did it from a stone that had been rejected by two other sculptors. It's too much of a problem, too big of a mess. You know, it was a large, misshapen, stubborn block, and one of the guys said, you know, it's just, uh, it's too much of a pain, and walked away. And yet, when uh, Michelangelo saw the stone, he was reported to say, there is an angel imprisoned within it and I must set it free. <laughs> and so he did. And we've been celebrating that ever since. From the mess, he made a masterpiece. And Paul says, here's the surprise, God does that with us. In this world, in our lives, God's up to the same thing with the mess that we find ourselves in. What mess? Well, the mess... It's a mess of disorder, of distortion, of disruption, of dysfunction. The world we live in, the lives we, we lead. In Ephesians chapter two, what Paul does, he just kind of describes this downward spiral of human experience in, uh, in lives that are separated and estranged from God. So if I want to invite you to listen to it as if you're hearing it for the very first time. As for you, you were dead dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work, now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us have also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and its thoughts, all of us. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now. That is a heavy diagnosis, right? Here's what Paul is saying. 
Apart from God, we are dead, deceived into disobedience. We don't see it, but that's what deceived means. And then we are dominated by desires that lead us astray. And then as a result, find ourselves doomed on the road to destruction. Objects of God's wrath. Now, please, don't, let, don't, don't think of these as an insult. Um, I would like to invite you to hear that as you would a, di a doctor's diagnosis. When your doctor tells you of a disease that maybe you didn't even know you had, but they, as accurately as she can or as accurately as he can, they're not trying to insult you, right? They're trying to help, but the way they help is by identifying the symptoms and the causes so that they can show you what's at issue here. And then they prescribe the treatment. But first, the diagnosis. That's what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, hey, heads up, he's showing us where do we find ourselves in this world when we are estranged from God? And what is the outcome going to be if something doesn't change? We're in a mess. We are spiritually dead, is what the coroner's report shows. Now, here's what we need to know about ourselves before we know that. According to the Bible, as a human being, you are a spirit. You are a spirit with a soul in a body. Your spirit is that moral center that allows you to have God consciousness. Your soul is the emotions that wrap themselves around that to give expression of what's your inner life through your body, which is how you present to the world. And here's what Paul says. You know what happened? Death has come to the spiritual center of who you are. We are spiritually dead because of trespasses and sins. When Adam chose against the tree of life and for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the consequence of that choice gripped him and the race that would come from him, showing us that breaking God's law and violating God's will will leave us dead, has left us dead spiritually, cut off. And here's what happens in the story. Spiritual death comes to Adam and Eve instantaneously, immediately, the center of their spirit. And then soul death, the disease takes hold that will now possess them gradually. Something's dying inside the emotional life. <laughs> and then it catches up with them physically. Inevitably, physical death comes. And then eternally, ultimately, death reigns. And that's our prognosis. Now, that's not a happy story, is it? Some people say this. You know, Bill, if they're, Pastor, if, if God is real, why can't I feel him? Why can't I see him? Why can't I hear him? Well, Paul's answer is because you're dead. Dead people don't hear, see, or feel. That's what the first diagnosis is. He says some part of you has died, and it's the part of you that's God conscious. It's the part that hears from God, feels God, and responds to God. That's death has come into you. So spiritual death came immediately. Soul death progresses them gradually, but then ultimately physical death and eternal death come. Our spirits are dead. Our moral inclinations. You say, well, I still have a moral awareness. Yeah, but our compass is off point. We're quick. Notice this. Have you noticed this about people? We're quick to judge others' uh, motivations and inclinations morally to make a judgment, but sometimes pretty slow about doing the same thing this way. We're much more forgiving about our own contradictions and hypocrisies. What is that? 
That inconsistency is a testimony to spiritual deadness. That's what he's talking about. So here's what happens. We become skilled in rationalizing and deflecting and in hiding and in blaming. Somebody said to err is human, to blame the other guy is even more human. Right? And there are expressions of spiritual death. Something's wrong here. And he says that what happens then is that there's, there's a deceiver, an invisible presence that is now dominating culture, human thought and desire, that turns our soul desires. It's like we become easy prey because if you're spiritually dead, you don't feel the God for whom you were made, but your emotional, your soulish life is still present and active. You want to feel something. You want to feel alive. And so what do we do? Well, we become easily tempted to sensual temptations, um, to sensual to soul desires. Emotions are expressions of the human soul. And since we can't feel spiritually, we want to feel alive. So it leads us into different types of captivities. You're familiar with these. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, addiction, sexual immorality, the adrenaline rush thrill of busy, 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 busy. And yet not, and then watching other things dissolve around us, other things die. And then away from God's design, misdirected into disobedience. Why? Paul says to gratify cravings from inside a sinful nature. Something's broken inside me. And then culture nurtures disobedience. So I got a nature problem and a nurture problem. Culture glamorizes and uh, glorifies it, but I yield to it, you yield to it, because human nature was born with this dysfunction from our ancient past that just keeps showing up. Keep showing up. So as Ryan said last week, we are walking civil wars. Anybody relate to that? You know, we love our sin and we hate it at the same time. Our own nature is divided. You ever felt conflicted inside yourself? It's an evidence of spiritual death, and Jesus said is ultimately leading to the road to ruin. Paul said it, but Jesus said it first. He said there's a wide road that leads to destruction, and many, many, many are on it. That's the doctor's prognosis. What does it feel like if you're on it? Well, hey, I don't do what I know I should do, and I do the things I know I shouldn't do, and then it suddenly dawns on me, I'm living in a world of people who are living with the same disease. That's happened. That's why the headlines are what they are. That's why stuff erupts in a broken world. Our own nature is divided. The culture's nurturing it. And like lemmings, unless there's some sort of intervention, we're headed for the cliff and it's not going to be pretty. That's the diagnosis. That's the prognosis. What a mess. What a mess. You ever looked and said, what a mess this world is in. What are we going to do about it? Well, what does God do when he sees the mess? Does he walk away like those two sculptors saying, boy, that was... Somebody else's deal, not mine. That stone is too stubborn. I'm not. No, he does what Michelangelo does. This is the big surprise. Verse four, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. He brings dead things to life, you know. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and uh, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is mind-blowing. Verse 8. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves. This is a gift from God. And God did it not by your works so that no one can boast. So God does for us what we can't do for ourselves and in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then responds by saying, now this is my gift to you, the gift of salvation. If you know how to receive a gift, you know how to receive God's life-changing salvation. But it's not simply a free pass to escape hell and go to heaven when you die. Look at verse 10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. That means God has a purpose for our lives, for your life, for my life, right here, right now, in this world, to make a difference in, this, in a messy world through good works. Our world is in a mess. It's like a diseased body, isn't it? And yet here's what Jesus says. My plan is I'm going to put you in it like white blood cells, and uh, your work is to promote life, health, and wholeness through the grace of God. And so the word workmanship is the Greek word poema. It looks like poem, but it means artistry, and it's not a stretch to say God's masterpiece. You are art by God if you're letting Christ work in you. You are God's work of art. You're under construction in love, and you are destined for greatness because of God's goodness. That's what the chapter is trying to tell us. It's not that we're good enough to deserve God's grace, but that God is so good that his grace covers all our death. And what that means is, in a practical way, is when those guilty thoughts rise up in you and you're tending to self-condemn because of what you did and you think it was just too horrible or maybe what somebody else did to you and you think you'll never be free from that and you're going to bear the scar of that and the pain of that. No, this is what he's saying. God's grace can get in there, cover all your death, and then work a work of healing. You can trust God to do for you what you can't do for yourself and trust that God is in the process of uh, delivering you to a new destination. Or you could say it this way, from the mess you're in, in Christ, God is making you a masterpiece. That's the good news. Destined for greatness that shows up in goodness. Good works through your life, even in a world that seems, seemingly has gone bad. And speaking of good works, I need to say this. Thank you to everybody who's already signed up for CityServe this next Saturday. I mean, we got teams. I love this about our church. We want to go do good. No strings attached. We want to show up and say God loves you, and we're here to do good for you. We got teams going out to Coral Gables High School, sanding and painting 33 classroom doors this coming Saturday and doing some landscaping. We got another group going out to Miami Beach High School, and there we're going to plant an organic garden, and we're going to paint the entrance of the school in a bistro where people gather to hang out. Out. And then down south, we've got a team that's going to be working at the Youth for Christ Kicks, uh, a student ministry area down there and doing cleanup after the hurricane. And then another group that's meeting right here in this campus to prepare meals for the food challenge to be served in Overtown and Florida City in the aftermath. I love this about us. It's what Jesus is talking about. His grace has done good for you so that now you can go and do good for others. And we're doing it Saturday. But here's another thing I know, and you know this too. There are some diseases where symptoms don't present with early pain. Is that true? Physically, 
It is possible for your body to be in desperate need, even diseased toward a fatal end, and you're not feeling it. In fact, you go to the doctor and you say, oh, I'm feeling good. Looking good, feeling good, all's good. And then the doc says what? Well, I think we ought to take a look at this. And it doesn't make sense to you immediately because you're not feeling anything. You're not feeling the pain. Until the doctor says, right there. The same can happen with spiritual disease. You can be going through life saying, hey, I'm good. I'm feeling good. I'm just doing my own thing. I'm minding my own business. And not even be aware that self-serving, self-absorbed, self-centered, self-made living, though celebrated by our culture, is not success. It's actually symptomatic of our spiritual disease. The you throughout this text, yeah, I know, it got really quiet, didn't it? This is not an easy thing to say or hear. We don't like this kind of stuff, but I'm telling you, that's what he's saying. It's like, whoa, I didn't know that. I didn't feel that. Surely you're talking about somebody else, not me. No, this is, this is our condition. The deadness doesn't show up. We don't feel it early on. And that's why in this entire chapter, the you, the second person plural pronoun, you, is different from first person. First person means, I'm just talking about one person. No, he's talking about everybody. In Southern English, it's, it's not y'all, it's all y'all. It means all y'all and me, this is our problem. This isn't just one person having one problem that's separated from everybody, no. This is each of us as if all of us to multiplied people. And what, we call, what that means is what we call rugged individualism might actually be cloaked, proud isolationism, and that is not healthy. That is selfish, and it doesn't lead to a fulfilled life. It leads to a downward end and a rude surprise. The fulfilled life according to Jesus, is living your life fulfilling the greatest commandment of love and having the allness of God's love in all of you, all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul, in all of you, spirit, soul, being, the allness of God in his love acting in you. That's success. But, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. But what this does, it leads to loving yourself as if you're all that matters. Am I wrong? As if you're all that is, and you get to be the center of your universe, and everything revolves around you. <laughs> and culture and marketing, boy, that markets well. But it doesn't end eternally so well. It's symptomatic, it's not success. And so the rest of the chapter shows us, well, then what does healthy spiritual life look like? From God's perspective, I mean, when God is allowed to give shape to the masterpiece, then what happens? Well, he brings a new community together. He, there's a new connectedness brought into being. He pulls together broken pieces of our broken world, and he gives shape into a whole new humanity that is like jaw-dropping. And the next 11 verses of this chapter, 11 through 22, portray what that looks like. He said, you know, here's how it works. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, the uncircumcised, those that were far from God, those that, are, that uh, were foreigners to the covenant of promise, excluded from citizenship in Israel, without hope, without God in the world. Then look at verse 13. Now in Christ, those who were far away have been brought near. 
through the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made the two one, a new unity, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. Verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two and thus making peace and in one body reconcile both of them to God through the cross. This is amazing. By which he put to death their hostility. And then he says, and this is what Jesus was doing. He came to preach peace to those who were far away and he came to preach peace to those who were near for through him both have access to the Father by one spirit. What's it mean? In Christ, God is creating a new humanity. A new humanity. From the mess you're in, God is making you into the masterpiece in Christ. And that's what the definition of his church is. And he does it not by the coercion or force of law or the power of the sword. He does it by the power of love. In our broken world, our tendency is to put up walls. If we want to control hostilities and promote, quote, peace, close quote, we put up walls. And this is not our current reality. It's been history of humanity. And we have neighborhoods in our own town that have walls around their community to promote peace and security, right? This is not a political statement, so don't get nervous. But what I'm saying is, here's what God does. In Christ, this is what Ephesians 2 says, God brings down the walls and he absorbs all the hostilities in himself at the cross, and then he offers wholeness, the potential healing of salvation, shalom, to all of those who were born dead. David Ring was born dead, Cerebral palsy, his umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck, but God gave him life and then he took the good news to the world. But to those of us born dead, born with disabilities, born with dis deceived and disobedience in our hearts, separated from God and estranged as if there is no God and excluded from his promise, here's what Paul is saying. This is the good news. God in Christ is making you his masterpiece. He's not walking away from you. He's walking towards you and dreaming a great dream. From the mess you're in, God in Christ is making you a masterpiece. He has brought us near. He's made the two one. He's reconciled us to himself and to one another. And we have equal access to God if you will. And all of this in that chapter, it's like it's just building and ramping up and it's like you can feel the crescendo growing until the cymbal crash is like, pah, in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. You are members of God's household, his family. And Christ Jesus is our chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and then rises to become a temple in the Lord. You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, before we turn loose to this, three words I want us to look at. The first one is member. You ever heard about church membership? Membership? Where does it come from? Well, this text uses the word members. This is what being a church member is. We have a membership process here. It's just a shadow of a much greater reality. Here's the reality. Membership isn't just having your name on the role of an institution. It's being connected in community with Christ where God is now giving shape to his masterpiece in human lives. 
And the second word is this, join together. You ever heard about joining the church? Where does it come from? Well, we have a process for joining the church, but it's just a shadow of a much greater reality. Here's the reality. Joining the church means joining what God is doing in his masterpiece on earth, connecting with the lives of other people as he gives shape to it in his world. Are you connected in community? And then the third word is translated rising to become. Rising to become. This is God's vision, that you would become more than your past, more than yourself, more than who you, what you can do in yourself, but a part of what God is doing in the world to pull you out of yourself and into a community where he's giving shape to a masterpiece. What does church membership mean? I wish everybody would be a church member at Christ's journey. I, I seriously do, but here's what it means. It means letting God move you first. From forever how far away you've been, just let him move you close. Are you willing to do that? You feel far from God today? Would you just say, Lord, move me closer? That's joining the masterpiece. It means letting God make you, mold you into part of his new humanity, connect you in community and join you to others' lives outside just individualism that can be egoism that doesn't end well. But in community, we're brought into love. Are you connected? Are you saying, Lord, I need help on this one, but I'm willing. Pull me out of myself and into somebody else's community. And then letting God meet you there and manifest himself in you. This is the most mind-blowing part of the vision. God wants to make himself present in our world, but he wants to do it through people like us. Out of the mess, he wants his masterpiece, not only to present, but he wants to present himself in the masterpiece in the mess, there, and, and bear witness to the world. What's the witness? The witness is this, there is a God. <laughs> and, and that God loves people in all of their mess. He brings them through the power of mercy to heal and help and then bear witness to the world that God is bigger than our divisions. God is bigger than our destruction. God is bigger than the mess we're in. And, and you can trust him. And for people who are dead spiritually, who don't tend to feel that or see that on their own, when they see a church that is full of people that are messes but are loving and healing and God is doing something good with no strings attached, it makes them go, what's going on here? From the mess we're in, God in Christ is making us a masterpiece. So how can you get in on it? Well, you just do what the stone did, yield to the sculptor. You let him have you, you let him shape you. You, you say, I'm willing, I'm available, I'm listening. I, I admit my need that there's part of me that I can't get to, but if you're God, it would make sense that you could. <laughs> and so then if you would move me closer, I'll come. And if you would make me stronger, I'll go. And if you would manifest yourself in me, then I'm willing. And then let him meet you there and bear witness. Would you pray with me? Perhaps for some of you, the right prayer for you as a believer, as someone on your spiritual journey it's simply to say, Lord, I, I just want to thank you for meeting me in my mess. 
and that you are still working in me and on me. And I receive your grace, I receive your forgiveness, flow into my life. And would you flow through my life with forgiveness toward others? Maybe brother, sister, it's time for you just to forgive yourself. Agree with God in that. And then to let God through you forgive someone who has brought pain to you, meet you in the mess, and then start pulling the pieces back together. Maybe it's responding to his chisel that there's some bitterness, some judgment, some interference that just needs to not stay with you any longer. Some mess in your garage that he needs to put in the trash and you would just say, Lord, clean house. Or maybe you're on the front end of your spiritual journey and you'd say, I'm seeking pastor, but I'm not sure what my next step is. Well, the next step could easily be this prayer. Lord Jesus, my life is a mess. I don't feel it. Actually, sometimes I think I'm doing good, feeling good, but, but from what you said today, it's raised a concern for me. So I wanna say, Lord, would you look into my life and then come into my life and bring your forgiveness for my sins, the power of your spirit to lead me in the way everlasting and deliver me from destruction by the gift of your salvation. I receive you. Thank you, Lord. Now our heads still bowed just for a moment, but if you prayed that prayer with me to ask Christ to come real in your life and would let me ask a blessing upon your next steps of faith, I'd like to simply ask you to raise your hand and hold it up for a few moments. If you're joining us online, you can click the orange banner and we're praying for you as well. But thank you, thank you, thank you. Right here in the front, in the center, I'm seeing several hands like eight or nine hands right here in the center section over to my far left. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Amen. Another four and over to my right. God bless you. Amen. And then one more here in the middle. Lord Jesus, for every person who by uplifted hand is signifying an open heart and inviting you to be the medicine and the doctor and to bring the gift of salvation to their soul, we pray that your spirit would refresh them, renew them, and even now assure them that you will never leave them or forsake them, but they are part of your family and you are now at work to deliver them to a new destiny. In your name we pray, amen.